Let's pray. Father, we glory in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. He crushed the power of sin and death for us. He's our Savior. He is our only plea before you this morning. He is our judge. We stand together this morning in the blood of the Lamb who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We ask that you would inhabit your people's praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is uh, the Word of God. So let us uh, open it together to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. This morning, we're going to examine and be examined by uh, verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2 as we look at the letter to the church at Pergamum. We'll first pray for God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to superintend our time together. Uh, Then we'll read the text that we are considering this morning. Uh, And then finally, we will dissect the passage verse by verse, um, making observations and applications as we travel through the text together. Let us pray. Uh, Father God, you have given the church your good name. We are who are called by the name of Jesus Christ ask you this morning to enable us by grace to hear what the Spirit speaks to the church. We ask for kingdom perspective, Lord, that we would understand that Christ is the sovereign King, even in these evil days that we live in, that He rules above our earthly leaders. We pray that as we proclaim the gospel in the world that we might stand steady in our conduct among ourselves as we, the community of faith, reflect the reality of our words, the reality of your word. Help us, Lord, to live in expectant hope this morning, in hope of your imminent return. Help us, Lord, to walk in faithfulness, trusting that Christ will soon make war on the enemies of our faith. Bring to your faithful people the reward of life eternal, our expectant hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of the inerrant, infallible Word of God from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who who kept teaching Balak to put a a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. A good name is to be treasured, desired more than great wealth, Proverbs 22 tells us. The church, the Christian, that will be named faithful witness when Christ returns is the church that illuminates Christ in public and repents of compromise from within that betrays their public witness. When we studied the church at Ephesus uh, in verses 1-7 through a couple weeks ago, Uh, we saw that an overemphasis on internal doctrinal purity can lead to a lack of concern for the world. This is to say that the church had grown so insular that the desire to be a light in the world had had grown dim. 
In Pergamum, by contrast, we will see that internal doctrinal compromise uh, actually is an over-identification with the world undermines their public witness. The Christians in Pergamon resisted external pressures. They had external pressures from the government and from religious authorities, uh, but they permitted a subtle form of compromise to develop within them internally. This internal compromise is, as I said, an over-identification with the world. The church, by compromise, becomes indistinguishable from the world, and her ways uh, betray her. Her ways say that she has capitulated to the world rather than to be a witness of Christ. That is, to be a light outside, but to have the light dimmed by bringing darkness in to the church was this problem that was going on at Pergamum. To be named of Christ, you see, is to be identified as His, as His both publicly and internally. It is, it is both a public matter to be identified with Christ. It is also an eternal matter. Christ's people behave like Christ's people. That there is a distinguishing, uh, from the world, right? As we come together. To be called when he returns, I, I long for, for, for our Lord to return. I hope that he returns today, but I, but there are some things that I, I hope that I shore up before he does, right? Because when I want, when he returns, I want him to say that I am his faithful and sensible servant. I want him to say that I am the faithful and, and sensible servant who has done his work outside of the church, but has also done his work inside the church. That I've been faithful and sensible in both ways. That I have been a good public witness, but that I have not betrayed my witness through compromise, through bringing worldliness in amongst the church. I want to do both things. I want to conduct myself according to the gospel as we gather together in the church, and I want the church to conduct herself uh, according to the gospel internally, as well as being an outward witness to the world. Beyond the four walls of the assembly, you see, both and. Beyond the four walls of the assembly were to be a light to the world, and inside the assembly were to reflect that light in doctrinal uh, purity from the world, that is, right? We're not going to be perfected, but I mean, in, in the sense that we have, as I said before, that we have transformed, we've stepped over, we've crossed the threshold from the mundane into the holy, right? We have somehow said that we are going to guard the gospel together, that that is part of our aim as a, as a church body. We are guarding the gospel, the integrity of the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, if you have been transformed by Jesus Christ, you will live like it. You will. You will live like it. At least that's what the scripture teaches, that you will live like it. So you may have noticed if you've been here any time or if you're uh, uh, even a new visitor that, that we at this church hold some strong convictions as it concerns the liturgy of the church on a Sunday morning. One time one of our visitors mentioned to me, your service is formal and you read a lot of scripture. And I said to him, that is intentional. It is on purpose. Our desire is that when a person crosses the threshold of the church door, that they have left the ordinary and that they have entered into what is the sacred. We desire that anyone who steps into the church would understand that this is Christ's assembly. This is, this is Christ's church. This is not the world's church. It's His. So it should look quite foreign and different to the worldly, shouldn't it? It should look quite odd in some sense. Think about the, the act that we will do later in going to the table of communion and eating a little uh, cracker and a little juice of bread, and we call that a meal. Is that not weird to the world that they're having a meal together? They're sharing the Lord's supper together. This wouldn't feed a mouse. 
But this is a meal. It's a feast. See, it's something supernatural and different, right? That we are entering into, into Christ and into His way. And that when we feast on this little uh, cracker and we drink of this little cup of juice, we are feasting on what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished in us. And it's a big meal. It's a big meal. It's a huge meal to appropriate what Christ has done broken for us, right? The, the bread that has come from heaven, the bread that is for us. We eat of this bread and we are nourished in the Spirit by this, by, by this act that we do together. It is quite strange to the world, but this is, this is intentional. This is Christ's assembly. It is not the assembly of the world. This is the gathering of the transformed people of God. Maybe think of Romans 12 and verse 2 where Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, our conduct and our doctrinal integrity declare that we truly believe the gospel that we proclaim. The, the, the gospel that we proclaim in the world, the good news about Jesus Christ See, if we declare that to the world and then we come in and it looks just like the world, it doesn't look like we have any integrity whatsoever. We say that change must be had, that God must change you, that you must be transformed from a person of dark to light, and yet you come in and there's nothing but worldliness and darkness in the church, right? It betrays our public witness. It says you don't really believe what you say you do. You don't believe that. Because if you believed that, then I, the, even the world would expect that it's something different. Because you've told them that, that it's different, that it's other, that it's other than, than the world. And yet then they come in and they find it, you know, here's an entertainment center, you know, we got people dancing and, and we've got, you know, movies playing. And then, you know, some guy comes up and he does a skit and, you know, you feel like, well, I just could have sat at home and watched TV for an hour and a half and got all of that, right? Um, so our integrity, our, our conduct and our doctrinal integrity declare that we truly believe the gospel that we proclaim in the world. It's a faithful witness. So as we uh, look again at this uh, letter, before we dissect it, I want to give us just a reminder that each of the letters to the seven churches is structured according to a pattern that we saw, uh, I talked about last week a bit, that the, the first part of, of the letters are the nature and the character of Christ is revealed to the church. Then we uh, understand the circumstances of the church, and then there's a commendation and a condemnation or both. There's one or the other or there's both. Um, and then there's an admonition to repent or to remain faithful. And then there's a promise. And then there's a promise to the repentant, to the church that overcomes by faith. So let us look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the two-edged sword says this. So here we see the character of Christ revealed. The one who speaks to the church is the Word of God. The one who is the Word of God is the judge. He is coming soon. By reminder, we can understand the book of Revelation, uh, its theme and its intent by looking at um, literary devices that are employed um, as we study this book. We see that there are some literary device employed by the earthly author as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So John, our, our partner in kingdom and tribulation and perseverance, uses a device that is known as an inclusio. An inclusio is, uh, I want to liken it to a sandwich that uh, an inclusio is like a sandwich as you're studying the word of God and you see this, this form, this, this pattern in, in the, in the scriptures. You see, there's, there's a, a top slice of bread and there's a bottom slice of bread and they're virtually the same. And it, it helps you to understand what the meat is in the middle right? To see these two slices of bread. So I want to look at the top slice of bread with you in chapter one, looking at verses three through seven. It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come 
from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, and to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. This is the top slice of bread. Let us look at the bottom slice of bread in chapter 22. So the book begins and it ends with the same, uh, seemingly same uh, slice of bread. You get to chapter 22. Let's look at verses uh, 10 through 12 together. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. The top and the bottom slice tell us much about the meat that is in the middle. The top and the bottom slice tell us this, that Jesus is the Christ and the church belongs to him. He tells us at the beginning that it's his. He tells us at the end that it is his. He tells us that he is coming soon at the beginning. He tells us he is coming soon at the end. He's telling us that he's coming and that he is the judge. He tells us that he is the word of God, that he is the sovereign king who by his soul-piercing word brings with him his reward and his judgment, and it's coming soon, and it's coming on a day and in an hour when you don't expect it. The letters are addressed to the church that she might understand this, that judgment begins in the household of God. See, before Jesus brings judgment to the kings of the earth, before Jesus brings judgment to the worldly, to the enemies of our faith, why then, when we look at the book of Revelation, does it begin with an address to the church? It comes with a revealing of who he is. I am king, I am lord, I am judge, I am the very word of God. And repentance and judgment they have to begin with God's people. So he begins this book with addressing the church. So he addresses the church directly first. Judgment begins in the household of God. So, you know, in many churches uh, in America, when they set out to determine the literary, uh, liturgy of the church, and I, by liturgy I want to mean how the church orders, how the church conducts uh, the assembly, uh, they determine the conduct of the church this American idea is according to that which appeals to the world. What will appeal to the most people? What will appeal to their sense of worldliness? What, if, what are the things that the world is into? Okay, so if the world is into these sort of things, then our appeal ought to be to have those things, right? That's what, that's what uh, a lot of church leaders in America do. But I would, I would uh, venture to say this and say it boldly, friends, that since judgment begins in the household of God and that the church belongs to Christ and Christ is the one who has a two-edged sword, that the church must order herself after the word of God and according to the word of God. That ought to be the order of things. What does God's word say? And then what do we do in light of what God's word says? That is the aim. And I hold these convictions quite strongly. For the church at Pergamum, the opening address from Jesus Christ is his self-revelation in verse 12. I am the one who has the two-edged sword and I say this. So according to the word of God, according to the fact that I am the judge and that I am the head of the church, I say this. That makes us understand this. I believe we must heed what he says. Going back to chapter one, right? Back to the theme of the whole book. Blessed is he who hears and heeds the words written in this prophecy. Since it is 
Christ church. It is the word of God spoken first. Then that is what we ought to uh, pay attention to. So I'm telling you this morning, pay attention to the word of God. Don't pay attention to me. Pay attention to what the word of God says. And as much as I uh, narrow down in on what the word of God says, listen to that and heed it because he's coming soon. And he's the judge and he's our judge and he's he has the right to judge. He was declared right. He was declared right. When he died for our sin, God raised him from the dead after three days, and he ascended into heaven. And when he uh, ascended into heaven, God said, this is the Lord. This is the master. And everyone who has faith in him belongs to him, that he is Lord over them. He is the king, not only of the church, but he is the king of the whole world. We remember that from the, from the opening of the book, that he is the king of kings, that he is the firstborn of the dead. You see, the one who was raised, the one who has ascended to heaven, he's declared both savior, lord, and master. And then it follows this, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. I want us to understand and believe this, to understand that, that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. He is the king now. And he is the king who is to come. And when he comes, he's bringing with him the sword of his mouth. He's bringing judgment. But he's calling us today not to fear judgment for ourselves if we would just repent and believe today. If, if, if we would, uh, repent of our compromise, if we would repent of the way that we have, uh, incorporated worldliness into, uh, how we conduct ourselves as Christians, if we would repent today, we can trust this. We can trust that when Jesus comes, he's judging the enemies of the gospel, but he's not judging those who have repented and believed by faith. Not saying that you're perfect, that you're going to be perfected, that, that today you're perfect. But if you repent and believe and continue in faith, you trust and know that he is coming to reward his people with eternal life, with uh, forever life. So when we look at Jesus' self-revelation in verse 12, it is an echo of what he says in chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a, two, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You see, the self-revelation of Jesus Christ declares that the church is his, that he is her judge, and that, Christian, you ought to heed what the word of God is as it's been delivered to you, because, behold, he is coming soon, and he is bringing his recompense with him to repay each one for what he or she has done. Let us look at verse 13. We've gone from Jesus' self-revelation. Now we're going to see that Jesus knows where we live. He knows the evil times, the evil days that we live in. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus, the sovereign king, he knows. He knows the condition of the church at Pergamum. He knows what they are dealing with. He knows the pressures that the church's faith, uh, face as, as it regards faithfulness in a fallen world. He says, I know where you dwell. I know you dwell in a place that embraces darkness. I know that you dwell in a place where Satan has right now temporarily set up shop. He says, I know that you are a small lampstand in a place that cannot tolerate the light. You live in a place that cannot tolerate light. This is one of the hardest things for a Christian to reconcile, isn't it? That Jesus is the sovereign king and the ruler of the kings of the earth, and yet we see atrocities everywhere. We see evil that seem, seemingly goes unchecked. And yet we know that Jesus is the sovereign king. How do we reconcile this? these two truths occurring at the same time? We know that Jesus is the sovereign king and the king of kings and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth and yet we live in a place where evil is exalted and where darkness is the pervasive norm. You see, Satan has been given a window. He's been given a window of time. He's been set up on a throne temporarily. But his time is short. Revelation 13.2 says, 
And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his authority. Later on, we're going to see that although Satan has, has given the beast great authority and uh, now his rule is, is limited, we're going to see this in Revelation 20, verse 2. It says, And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This, this binding is, is, is not uh, that, that Satan doesn't have some roaming room. He's limited. He's bound temporarily. He's limited. But he still wreaks lots of havoc. And he still has been enthroned in the hearts and the lives of, of society and of kings, of the kings of the earth. And the, to the church of Pergamum, Jesus declares that he is the judge of the world and he is the ruler over the evil one, even the evil one who is enthroned where you live. If we, if we look at verse 13 really carefully, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So he says, I, I know the evil times that you live in. I'm the judge of the world and I am the ruler over the evil one who's enthroned where you live. And I know these evil times that you live in, but I am the sovereign judge. In these dark times you live, that you live in, you are but a small light. I whose face is shining like the sun in its full strength and coming soon to exact my judgment on the darkness and to drown out the darkness with the full and complete light of God. I am coming soon. I know where you live and I know the challenges that you face in being light in a dark place. I know that light and dark cannot peacefully coexist together is what Jesus is intimating here. I know that dark and light don't dwell well together. Therefore, it is this fact that a witnessing church, a church that is witnessing to the world will be a persecuted church. A church that is declaring the light of Jesus Christ, both externally and internally, will be a persecuted church. Because Satan works through the ungodly, earthly political powers there in Pergamum and in the places where we live to persecute God's people. As in Smyrna, Satan is named as the ultimate instigator of persecution. The throne of Satan in Pergamum is a way of referring to that city as a center of the Roman government and pagan religion. It was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to the Roman emperor uh, Augustus. And the capital of the whole area uh, was for the, the, it was the capital city for the cult of empire, of emperor worship. Life in a culture that had uh, a, a lack of separation between politics and religion, you see. And this lack of separation between politics and religion put more pressure on the church to pay homage to Caesar as a deity. So refuse, refu refusal meant high treason to the state. And this is what this church is commended for having done. I know that you dwell where Satan's on the throne. I know that, that Satan is, is, is using these earthly men to dominate you, but you have stood fast. You have stood fast against this persecution. You have remained faithful. You have not denied my name in the public arena, he says here in verse 13. And then he speaks of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, the one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Notice this, that Antipas is given his name. What does Jesus say that he is, as we saw in the introduction of the book? Jesus says that he is the faithful witness. What does he say about Antipas? He says, Antipas is my witness, my faithful one. He has given him his name. He gave him his name. What did he do to earn his name? How did he get the name of Christ? How did he get named the faithful witness? I pose to you that it is what Revelation chapter 12 teaches us. 
in verse uh, 11. He overcame him. He overcame the evil one. Antipas did. Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of his testimony. And he did not love his life even when faced with death. Even when faced with death, Antipas remained faithful to declare Jesus Christ as Lord and King. It cost him his life, but he gained everything. He gained the great name of Jesus Christ. He gained the name, my faithful one. He's named of Christ. Sometimes when we think about our Christianity, especially in our culture of consumerism and consumer idolatry and all of those things, we don't understand that to be counted faithful, to be counted faithful, to be called the faithful one, to be named of Christ, to be what to be said of you, what is said of him. That's the goal. And what will it cost? What will it cost you? Most are not willing to pay it. Most are not willing to pay it. And since they're not willing to pay it, what do they do? Compromise. I'm not willing to pay that price. If I compromise, I won't lose my reputation. Right? I want people to think well of me. But if I stand firm on Jesus Christ, I'll probably lose favor with this person who I like and I want to like me. If it costs you your life, if it costs you your life today, if it costs you your life, will you stand for Jesus? Will you stand by faith right now with a gun to your head, knowing that it's going to cost you your life? Will you say, but I believe and I trust, I trust in Jesus I trust that he is bringing with him my reward. I love my life not even, I don't love my life even unto the point of death. Because a great name is to be more treasured than life. A great name is to be treasured more than life. And think about that, 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 that name that we get given in Christ, we have his name. To be given his name means that we have his nature. We are also to have his nature. We can't be a Christian in name only. How much will it cost us? Let's look at verse 14 and uh, 15 together. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what we see here is that although they're, they're, they're doing well at standing firm in the world, in their public witness, as it pertains to the uh, the government uh, and religious leaders of the day, they're, they're not capitulating uh, in that sense. They're not bowing down before them. They're still proclaiming Jesus Christ to the world. Yet what we see here is that something internal has gone wrong. They're indicted here because in them, it's not so much that that uh, there are these who, who have these false teachings and all of these things going on and that they have, they have enticed people to commit acts of immorality. They've, uh, adopted this idea, uh, internally of capitulating to the world in their practice. They've brought worldliness in to how they practice their faith, right? They're betraying their outward witness because internally they've compromised. But the problem the real problem here is that they haven't corrected the people who are in error. They haven't corrected them. Because he's saying to them, I have these things against you because you have in there some 
who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Some who keep teaching, uh, keep the teaching of Balak, and, and they put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to, uh, to things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. You also have the Nicolaitans. See, there's some in them, and they have not eradicated it internally. They've compromised. They've allowed it to come in. They've allowed it to be part of the fiber of what the church is about. This makes me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Paul admonishing the church there because they have failed to correct the errors that are within them. And they've taken compromise and actually exalted it. They've actually been braggadocious about their compromise, about the fact that they've brought in worldliness. Look at us. We're, 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 we're kind of a group. We're doing a good thing here, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and an immorality of such a kind that doesn't exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who did this deed would be removed from your midst. You see, you've compromised and you've hung on to this. And you've actually sort of bragged about it. This is the same sort of thing, indictment, that he's talking about here in Pergamum. You have some who hold to these teachings. You have some who have compromised. There's worldliness who, that has come into your church, and you haven't rid yourselves of it. And instead of ridding yourselves of it, you actually kind of wear it like a banner. Look at us. We're kind of the hip church. We're kind of the new thing, right? We're kind of, we're, we're woke, you know. We're, we're the woke church, right? We've, we've got it together. We know what we're doing. We're all about, you know, social justice movements and all those things. We, we've got that all together. We're, we're all about permissive sexuality. I mean, come on, right? We, we want to we wanna be part of the world. We want, we want the world to love us, right? And eventually, right, hopefully they'll love Jesus, but we want them to love us first, right? So we're, we're, we're doing pretty good. We're one of those kind of people. And Paul in Corinth says, this should not even be named amongst the people of God. This should not be named among you. This is not how the people of God conduct themselves. And, and I, I believe that Jesus here is saying the same thing to the church of Pergamum. This is not how the people of God conduct themselves. You are betraying your witness. You're saying one thing, but you're another. You've incorporated the world into this, Right? This is not the gospel you proclaim. You're not living according to it. And I'm the judge and I'm coming. And judgment is going to begin in the household of God. If we look at verses 6 and 7 in 1 Corinthians 5, it says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. See, John wants the church to know. He wants the hearer to know. He wants the reader. He wants those of us who are sitting here listening to the word of God today to know this, that the church of Jesus Christ belongs to him. It is Jesus' church, that it is other than. He wants us to know this, that Jesus Christ is our Savior if we repent and believe. But he also wants us to know that if we are unrepentant, he is the sovereign king of the world and that he will come in judgment to the unrepentant. He will come in judgment. This is his church and it will be the way he wants it. It will be the way the Lord wants it. It's his church. He will come with exacting force. He wants us to know this. In verse 16, he says, Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly. Judgment is coming. And it's coming for the kings of the earth, because we're going to see in the latter half of 16, he says, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. But he, what, what he wants them to know is that by faith, through repentance, 
and faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus comes as our Savior. He comes to redeem His people, to give to Him, to them, His name, His stamp of approval that says, you are my faithful witnesses. You are my good and sensible servants. And with me, I bring reward. I bring eternal life. I bring... Uh, the manna from heaven. I bring all these good things to you to bring you to your expected end and your hope. But if you do not repent, remember that this judge who is coming to rid the world of its kings will come for you too. So you kind of have a choice, right? You're sitting here today in a quandary if you're not a believer. You, ha you have a problem. I'm telling you right now that you have a problem. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today and you're sitting here, you have a serious, serious problem. You do. And here's the serious problem. That Jesus Christ, the rightful judge, has come and is coming. The one who was, the one who is, is the one who is to come, and he is the judge. He is the very word of God. He is coming. And when he comes, he's looking for faith. Will he find faith? But you have this moment, a crisis. And the crisis is this. This is a crisis moment for you. If you believe, if you repent and turn from your sin and believe, today you have eternal life and you have the promise of eternity and he's coming and he's going to bring that to you and bring that for you. If you don't, this is a crisis, crisis moment. Because he is the judge. He is the right and true judge. So you have a choice. Repent and believe and receive eternal life or reject him. Reject what I'm saying. Reject what the word of God says. And you sit today condemned. And the only thing that's coming for you is judgment. The judgment of the right king is coming for you. That's your crisis. And John wants the reader here in Pergamum to know that there, that because he's saying he's coming soon and he's coming in a day and an hour when you do not know, he says, repent or else. This is, this is a crisis moment for you. You have compromised. You have betrayed your witness. This is a crisis moment for the church at Pergamum. Because he, he follows it with the fact that he is coming to dethrone the Satan and he's coming to dethrone the kings of the earth who have uh, used, been used of Satan to, to destroy his people. He's coming. He's going to judge them. He's going to destroy them. He's going to rid the earth of them. He's coming. And he's saying, church, you've compromised. Repent or that judgment comes for you. But listen to the promise. Listen to the promise. It's greater than the judgment, right? The promise is great. The promise is great. In verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to stop there for a minute. I want to pray right now that if there's one whose ears have been stopped up, if there's one amongst us whose heart has been hardened to the truth, that right now I ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would open up the stopped ears, that you would remove the blinders from the eyes, and that you would, that you would circumcise the heart, that today would be the day that they receive the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation. That when you return, you would find them and say, this is my faithful and sensible servant who repented and believed in me, who trusted in my death for their sin, who trusted that when God raised him from the dead, that I could walk in a new life. Even though I'm in a dark world, I can walk in new life by faith in what Christ has done. And I know that since he ascended to heaven, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth and the ruler of the church, and he is the Lord of my life. I pray, Lord, that you would move in such a one today and do that work. 
In Revelation 19, 15 through 16, it says this. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written on him, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but the one who receives it. Here's the thing. This is your testimony, brothers and sisters. I want this to be your testimony. I can tell you all day long about Jesus Christ from the Bible. I can show you in the Scriptures that it declares that He is the King. But there's also this, that the Spirit has convinced my heart that I am a child of God. The Spirit of God has convinced me that I hold His name. I am named of Him. He calls me by His own name. He calls me Christian. I am a little Christ. I am in Him. He calls me by His name. He's given me faith. No one can declare that Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit does that work in them. And no one can know the name of Christ unless they receive it from Him. The one who knows, knows. Do you know that you know that you know that you know? Right? That's the question. Do you know? Like, for sure, do you know? I hope that we wrestle with that question even in our own lives, even those who have walked with Christ for a long, long time. I hope that when you've stepped in it and when you've failed, when you've walked in things you ought not to walk in, and you repent, I hope that you ask this question of yourself. Am I of the faith? Am I named of Him? Do I trust in that? And I think the ones that are, in fact, I know from my own life when I've asked this question, when I pose this question, do I really belong to you? Especially when I'm in failure, right? I think there's no way God could love me. I failed too deeply. I've done too much wrong. And when I bow my heart before him and when I pray to him, it's like he says to me, get up, son. Get up, son, you're mine. You're mine. You believe, don't you? You believe, you're mine. You've trusted me by faith, you're mine. I'm not expecting you to be perfected yet, I'm expecting you to believe and to trust. You're mine. I want to notice us here that hidden manna, what is hidden manna? Hidden manna, brothers and sisters, is life. It's life-sustaining food. This is what he promises to the one who repents and believes. I'm going to give you hidden manna. Hidden manna. Bread of life. It made me think of John chapter 6, just a big section. I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, verses 27 through 41. This is a reminder to us as we think about living in this dark world. And, and Jesus was in, in the world in a time of darkness as well, wasn't he? He was, he was in the world in a time of evil. They wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. They wouldn't listen to him. In John chapter 6, verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said to him, What then do you do for a son so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, that is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven. But my Father, who gives you the bread out of heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he said to them, Lord, give us this bread always. And here is the hidden manna. 
This is the hidden manna. This is the manna that you receive by faith in Christ. This is really good news, guys. This is, this is, this is soul sustaining, nourishing food. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you did not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up at the last day. This is the hidden manna. This is the bread. This is the bread of life. See, he promises this. He promises, I'm coming as a judge. Repent. To those who overcome, those who overcome compromise, those who, who repent of their compromise, those who are faithful witnesses both externally and internally, those who repent, he says, I come and I bring them a reward and not judgment. And I bring them this reward. Life. Eternal life. I bring them forever. I come with them forever, with forever food, with a forever, a forever nourishing from heaven. And here's, here's, here's the really good news that if you sit here today and you would just repent and believe right now, and you put your trust and your faith fully in Jesus Christ right now, right where you sit, that Jesus Christ will sustain your soul with the bread of heaven, with life with eternal life right now. He wants us to have life, right? And that more abundantly, the word says. Abundant life. What is abundant life? It's, it's a spiritual life nourished by the bread from heaven. This is good news, my brothers and sisters. So I pray that we would, as we close out here, that we would just reflect on what God's word has revealed to you this morning. Is there some way in which you have compromised that he's asking you to repent? Or does he just merely want you to grab a hold of the promise of his nourishment in Jesus that you have by faith? Does he want you to grab a hold of that promise more sure?